This podcast may contain explicit language. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, the show that uses a unique grading style to redefine what the greatest movies are. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. Tonight, before we get to our movie of the week, we are going to briefly discuss one of our, I don't know, sister lists known as the gold standard of greatest movie of all time production, the sight and sound what would you call it? Decatennial or what's every 10 years, every 10 years poll of the greatest movies of all time. Half score. What? Half score. Haven't you ever wondered when Gettysburg addressed? Yeah, okay, so that's 20. I guess I and just four don't. score and seven years ago, it's 20 years. So half a score would be every 10 years. Now you're just making it over the top, but okay. Regardless, this is a poll that, since it was released last Friday, has drawn a lot of intrigue from the film-going community. We have a new number one film, which I didn't even know anything about the film. I was completely confused as to this being the overall number one film. And we have had, now this is the fourth different number one film of all time on this gold standard list since 1952. The first was Bicycle Thieves in 1952 when we had 65 critics decide what the top 10 best films of all time were. Since that point, we had, I think, four or five different decades with Citizen Kane as number one, followed by last go-around in 2012, we finally got a different number one with Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo, And then that was supplanted this year by a, I'm not sure if it's French or if it's Belgian, but Jean Dielman. I'm going to, I'm going to try and find the film and watch it. But from what I understand, there's like several minutes of somebody making a meatloaf. That's correct. And if that's the case, then my uncle Bob's home movies should be right near the top because it's a lot of times them making dinner. Well, allegedly the film is currently available on Amazon Prime, at least at the time of this recording. So it is available to watch, but it is a three-hour-plus movie of, at least from my understanding, a woman who is of the night and how she deals with all of that while also trying to maintain some normalcy in her everyday life. I may be wrong on that, and so it's a little bit controversial, I know that it is the first time we've had a female director hit number one on the list, but I just thought, since this is allegedly the gold standard of what the greatest movie of all time is, and that is the name of our show, we need to kind of at least just loosely discuss the list itself. So other than the number one film, which of course is going to draw the most attention, and the top ten, which until 2012, there had only been 10 films usually released. And for the most part, they were fairly consistent year on year or decade on decade. We have some of the same films just appearing over and over. Now, the other thing I'll comment on is if you're just taking it based on 
the number of films by particular directors appearing on the list. There are two directors that had four films on the list this year, at least in the critics poll. One of them is Alfred Hitchcock. The other one being Jean-Luc Godard that we lost a little bit earlier this year when we did a in memoriam. I think it might've been in the last couple of months. Billy Wilder has three films. Orson Welles has two films, I believe. And there are a number of handful of other people that have two films, including Martin Scorsese. I think Kubrick has three films on there. But overall, a varied list of some of the greatest filmmakers of all time. David Lynch has two on the list. There is no Steven Spielberg movie on this list. Which makes absolutely no sense. And the fact that, quite frankly, I am as big a Hitchcock fan as anybody. And I don't think Vertigo is his best film. Well, we've said that for a while. I don't know. I, I guess it's maybe the difference between people who are critics or who believe they're critics looking for something more than what most people would think about. Kind of reminds me sometimes of how in uh, English in college, everything was a Christ figure. I think sometimes critics overthink this stuff. Well, I'm not even going to go that far and say that their list is wrong because as we've mentioned on multiple occasions, movies are subjective. And so if you ask art people, what are the most artistic movies? That's what they're going to put. Yeah. To me, this, however, represents a fairly flawed understanding of how to attune what is best and what is greatest. The concept of our show has always been about what is the greatest film, not what is the best film. I think that varies significantly. Where we think Singing in the Rain or The Wizard of Oz are really good movies and could be among some of the best movies ever made, they're not going to be the greatest based on the criteria that we have for them. Similarly, the Sight and Sound poll doubled its list makers this year, and a lot of them are kind of releasing what they submitted as their top 10. Apparently what they do is they all submit a top 10 list. And then these get combined into a top 100. But they give you no criteria on which you need to choose these 10. And so literally it could just be your 10 favorite films. And yeah. if it were my 10 favorite films, we'd get a lot of, I would say, somewhat lowest common denominator films. There'd be a lot of things on there that I think have no business being on a best list of all time. But by the same token... And this is why I think our list and our criteria is eventually going to become a better list, or maybe already is, is that we're bringing in some other factors that weigh heavily on the decision-making process. And because it's not about any one specific category being bigger than the rest, and we consult the audience, I think we arrive at a number that is better off or a more reflective nature of what is great as opposed to what is best. I think you're right. I mean, to the, how do you get a group of people to agree on anything without at least putting some sort of criteria in it? Because it, without having something to measure it by, everybody's going to come at it with a completely different view, manner, method by which they drive their list. I think for the purposes of what this 
list from Sight and Sound is meant to accomplish, which is to draw attention to films that they think are some of the best ever made, it is definitely going to spark discussion, reviewing of a lot of these films, and a lot of think pieces in the next months, couple of years, or whatever. But because they put out one of these only every 10 years that is supposedly reflective of the next decade of films, it unfortunately masks or has a delayed reaction because of the length in between each one of these polls. As you mentioned, a film that is now number one is not a film you'd heard of or I'd heard of, but now we're both interested in seeing to judge for ourselves. For movie people, that's always going to be an interesting exercise. But by the other token, is that really how you determine what is greatest? I I just, I have a hard time divorcing myself from a little known French or Belgian film to most Americans, defining what is the greatest as opposed to the best. It very well could be the best, but for example, with Steven Spielberg being off the list, how do you define a greatest list that doesn't include at least one Spielberg film? It's like having a greatest British literature class and having no Charles Dickens on it. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Well, for the longest time, Hitchcock was, was dissed by Hollywood and the critics because he was commercial. He did a television show. He was he he did movies that played well in theaters and had box office appeal. And so people dismissed him as an artist. I mean, I've, I I know music critics who hate the Beatles because they were too popular. And somehow or another popularity is an anathema to art to some people. It makes no sense to me. And I don't understand that that uh, concept or where they're coming up with it, but I see it a lot. Well, that would lead to a much broader discussion on art versus popularity. And can you really be a true tastemaker if you're commercialized? Whether you want to go through music, where a lot of people have their qualms about what is quality versus what's popular, I've just never quite understood that or if you want to go for movies, or if you want to go for TV. For whatever reason, stuff that seems popular will never resonate fully with the art community in the same way that, you know, a a little-known hole-in-the-wall type of project will get and garner more widespread attention. And I think we see that every year at the Oscars with the clash of the giant tentpole films that we get from most of the major studios that get shut out of most of the awards other than some of the technical stuff. And then we get these very small indie films that end up winning most of the major awards. I, I know. I, and I, I, I listen or think about the fact that uh, Monet is considered a great artist now, but when he was painting, it was not uncommon for him when he was low of cash to just finish a painting and go down into Paris and sell it because he needed money. It's not like it was just an inspiration of artistic creativity. It was a need for cash. So let's transition away from that and get to one of our other updates from this last week. You were supposed to do a experiment or I guess a report on the non-context picture of Lancaster and Deborah Kerr on the beach. 
Do you have your report ready for us? No, I do not. The week slipped away because of uh, business. I see. Well, I guess we'll have to delay that into next week. So if you're ready, tonight we will be applying our patent-pending Stanley rubric to Avatar from 2009, written and directed by James Cameron, starring Sam Worthington, Zoe Saldana, and Sigourney Weaver. Avatar has twice been the highest-grossing movie after a re-release earlier this year helped push it back into the top spot over Avengers Endgame. Avatar was also nominated for nine Academy Awards, winning three, and received widespread critical acclaim during its initial release. Its sequel, Avatar The Way of Water, is set to release on December 16th, 2022, shortly after this episode will air. You have famously said that you would never see this film, and have not, until this week. Why did you choose not to skip this week and finally watch this film? Because I'm a 59-year-old man and don't want to get stuck in my groove. I want to try and experience new things, even if I find them somewhat distasteful before I start. Going back to our previous discussion of popular versus artistic, so you objected to this movie on the backing of everybody else liked it? No, because I just couldn't understand why anybody would want to make it. But apparently everybody thought it was great, and I don't care. I like necessarily moving to a different beat. I see. So there are times when you backlash against what is popular for the sake of what you would like, and so thus your subjectivity to it. Well, yes. Oh, so a double standard being applied here? I want to be an individual. And when I was in college at Beloit, Everybody wore tie-dye jeans. I wore a uh, Oxford shirt and a tie to class every day because I was being different. All right, so on the film, initial impressions. Okay, for me? Yeah. All right, well. Is, is there anybody else here? I mean, initial impressions. I mean, I'm giving you a softball. It was everything I thought it was going to be and more. It was like watching a video game. Okay. In a good way, in a bad way. Well, I don't know. If you want thinly veiled characters with absolutely no need to have any acting talent and a story that was so predictable that I could have told you what was gonna how it was gonna end before it ever began, then it was great. If you want substance, don't bother. Alright then. Do you want my actual opinion? Because I've got more. You can give whatever you want. You are a co-host well, just, of this just show. Just wait. I mean, I'll, I'll wait until the certain times come up. Okay. Now, as I mentioned before, this movie is famous for being the highest grossing film of all time, and it has a sequel coming out, but the original seems mostly forgotten some 13 years later, and many, including myself, wonder why we need the sequels at all, given that there are at least four planned and two already completely filmed. Being an outsider to this now franchise, why do you think this was mostly forgettable for the general viewer after there was this initial craze for about three to four months, and then it steadily dropped off and nobody probably has seen the film since? It was a fad. It was, an, it was a unique experience because it was something completely different. And as far as the sequels, 
I mean, I don't know why we bother. We should just title them the way they should be, which is Avatar, the grab for more cash, or Avatar, I'm James Cameron, and I'm trying to find relevancy in my late 60s. Well, I think the second is probably closer to accurate because James Cameron has topped himself with the highest grossing film of all time by leaps and bounds with Titanic, then did it again with this movie. How much more money does he really need? I don't know. I don't think it's necessarily money that he's after. I think it's just stroking of ego. Or maybe it's a Freudian thing. And given that it's a franchise that hasn't had a film in 13 years, I mean, it's not like Top Gun where there's a certain nostalgia for it that eventually called upon Tom Cruise to revisit the character. I just don't see anybody going and saying, we need a Jake Sully to come back. Okay, let me put it this way, and I'm going to get into this further when we're talking about it. If you went up to somebody and talked about Avatar right now, you would get as many people going thinking about something, some sort of app on their phone, or Avatar the Airbender TV show that you can stream on Netflix, as you are about the Cameron movie. That's probably true, at least for a younger generation. I mean, I, I just don't think it had any staying power. It was the film equivalent of Slime or The Pet Rock. Okay. Things that just were really fad and popular and then faded into oblivion. So I know you have absolutely no relationship to this movie prior, other than saying that you wouldn't watch it, and it kind of fell by the wayside of similar movies like The Last Samurai that you said you would just never see. Ironically, it's a film that's fairly similar in story to this one. But my relationship to the film is I remember a few things about this coming out. One, it was a huge fad that in its initial like couple of weeks, everybody thought was going to be a huge flop. And then it suddenly like took over and it had all of these people in its second and third week saying, oh, this is a really good movie. Everybody needs to go see this. And seeing it in IMAX, I guess, was like a big deal. It got people like my aunt to the movie theater, which I wouldn't expect for her to go see a movie about some futuristic sci-fi alien race. But somehow this movie drew people like that into it. I remember watching the film when it was out of theaters, like six months later, because it was a fad. And I, I think I got the DVD and I watched it on a very small TV in my apartment my freshman year of college. And I'm like, this is fine. It doesn't do anything for me. It's not all that special. And the other big thing about that year was, is I didn't think it would win best picture. And everybody thought it was the front runner and the favorite, especially because it was the first year that they had expanded the number of nominees from five to, it could be up to 10 after the dark Knight debacle of 2008. And Cameron loses both best director and best picture to his ex-wife, to The Hurt Locker, and Catherine Bigelow. Excellent film, by the way. Much better than this. A film we'll eventually get to, of course. So, that leads to our normal question. What is this movie about? Uh, Dances with Wolves meets Star Trek and has a movie love child. I think the actual themes of the film are very thinly veiled. 
Well, it, it it's it's about Native Americans. It is the story of what we did to the Native Americans or the Indians. Well, yes, it has pieces of that, but I think it's more of an environmental film. It's preserving our connection to nature at the cost of the military-industrial complex. Okay, I can see that. But I do think that this is really retelling of the story. It's an old West film, but you did it futuristic so you could use the CGI. I, I mean, I followed, I went and took the storyline, the description off of Wikipedia for Avatar, and then I put it on a, my other screen for Dances with Wolves. And it's almost, I mean, if I'm Costner, I'm wanting, I, I'm wanting some sort of uh, credit for Cameron's script because it follows almost the exact same plot lines. I wouldn't worry about Kevin Costner. He's getting all that Yellowstone money. Yeah, I'm sure he's not hurting. Anyway, let's give context on the film. Do you have a plot summary ready for us? I do. Jake Sully, Sam Worthington, a former Marine, confined to a wheelchair, has been recruited to join an expedition to the moon Pandora, where corporate interests are strip mining for a mineral worth $20 billion per kilogram on Earth. To facilitate their work, the humans use a link system that projects a person's consciousness into a hybrid of humans, and Pandora's indigenous humanoids, the Navi. This human-Navi hybrid, a fully living, breathing body that resembles the Navi, but possesses the individual human's thoughts, feelings, and personality, is known as an avatar. Jake must work with Dr. Grace Augustine, Sigourney Weaver, the head of the avatar program, who is not sure of Sully's suitability to the project, and Colonel Miles Quaritch, Stephen Lang, head of the mining operations security detail. Jake's mission is to interact with and infiltrate the Navi with the hope of enlisting their help, or at least their acquiescence, in mining the ore. A beautiful Navi, Natiri, Zoe Saldana, saves Jake's life and eventually shows him the culture of her people. As Jake's relationship with Natiri deepens, along with his respect for the Navi, he faces the ultimate test as he leads an epic conflict that will decide nothing less than the fate of an entire world. Thank you. Cast for this movie, James Cameron as the writer-slash-director, Sam Worthington as Jake Sully, Stephen Lang as Colonel Miles Quaritch, Sigourney Weaver as Dr. Grace Augustine, Michelle Rodriguez as Trudy Chacon, Giovanni Rabisi as Parker Selfridge, Joel David Moore as Dr. Norm Spellman, Dilip Rao as Dr. Max Patel, Zoe Saldana as Natiri, CCH Pounder as Moat, Wes Studi as A Tukan, Laz Alonzo as Sute. Recognition for this movie? Avatar premiered in London on December 10th, 2009, and was released theatrically worldwide from December 16th to 18th. It earned $3.5 million from midnight screenings domestically, United States and Canada, with the initial 3D release limited to 2,200 screens. The film earned $26.7 million on its opening day and $77 million over its opening weekend, making it the second largest December opening behind I Am Legend, the largest domestic opening weekend for a film not based on a franchise, topping The Incredibles, the highest opening weekend for a film entirely in 3D, breaking Up's record, the highest opening weekend for an environmentalist film, 
breaking the day after tomorrow's record, and the 40th largest opening weekend in North America, despite a blizzard that blanketed the east coast of the United States and reportedly hurt its opening weekend results. The film also set an IMAX opening weekend record with 178 theaters generating approximately $9.5 million, 12% of the film's $77 million at the time, North American gross on less than 3% of the screens. Revenues in the film's second weekend decreased by only 1.8% in domestic markets, marking a rare occurrence, earning $75.6 million to remain in first place at the box office and recording what was then the second biggest weekend of all time. Avatar crossed the $1 billion mark on the 19th day of its international release, making it the first film to reach this mark in only 19 days. It became the fifth film grossing more than $1 billion worldwide, and the only film of 2009 to do so. On January 31, 2010, it became the first film to earn over $2 billion worldwide, and became the first film to gross over $700 million in the U.S. and Canada. On February 27th, after 72 days of release, it remained at number one at the domestic box office for seven consecutive weeks, the most consecutive number one weekend since Titanic spent 15 weekends at number one in 1997 and 1998, and also spent 11 consecutive weekends at the top of the box office outside the United States and Canada, breaking the record of nine consecutive weekends set by Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Man's Chest. By the end of its first theatrical release, Avatar had grossed $749 million in the U.S. and Canada, and $1.9 billion in other territories for a worldwide total of $2.7 billion. Avatar set a number of box office records during its release. On January 25, 2010, it surpassed Titanic's worldwide gross to become the highest-grossing film of all time worldwide, 41 days after its international release. On a worldwide basis, when Avatar's gross stood at $2 billion just 35 days into its run, the Daily Telegraph estimated its gross was surpassed by only Gone with the Wind at $3 billion, Titanic at $2.9 billion, and the original Star Wars at $2.2 billion after adjusting for inflation to 2010 prices. With Avatar ultimately winding up with $2.92 billion after subsequent re-releases, Reuters even placed it ahead of Titanic after adjusting the global total for inflation. The 2015 edition of Guinness World Records lists Avatar only behind Gone with the Wind in terms of adjusted grosses worldwide. Avatar was nominated for nine Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Director for James Cameron, Film Editing, Original Score, Sound Editing, and Sound Mixing, and it won for Best Visual Effects, Art Direction, and Cinematography. Time ranked Avatar number three in their list of the 10 greatest movies of the millennium thus far, and it also earned a top spot on the magazine's all-time 100 list. IGN listed Avatar as number 22 on their list of the top 25 sci-fi movies of all time. Avatar currently holds an 82% among critics on Rotten Tomatoes, an 83 score on Metacritic, and a 3.5 out of 5 on Letterboxd. Did you know? James Cameron originally planned to have the film completed for release in 1999. At the time, the special effects he wanted increased the budget to over $400 million. Thus, no studio would fund the film, and it was shelved for eight years. Did you know? James Cameron was convinced that CGI effects had progressed enough to make this film when he saw Gollum in The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers from 2002. Did you know? 
The Navi language was created entirely from scratch by linguist Dr. Paul R. Fromer. James Cameron hired him to construct a language that would be easy for actors to pronounce, but would not resemble any human language. Fromer created about 1,000 words. Did you know? At the time of auditioning, Sam Worthington was living in his car. Did you know? Jake's atrophied legs were prosthetics cast from the legs of a real paraplegic. Sam Worthington's real legs were tucked into the wheelchair and digitally removed in post-production. Did you know? Director James Cameron, known for being tough on set, allegedly kept a nail gun on set that he would use to nail cell phones that had the misfortune of ringing to a wall above the exit sign. Did you know? The cigarette that Sigourney Weaver's character smokes was completely computer-generated. Did you know? Some CGI scenes took an average of 47 hours to render. Did you know? To appease 20th Century Fox's fears and remembering the harrowing experience of Titanic and its production overruns and costly delays, James Cameron promised to forego his director's fee if Avatar flopped. And with that, we will take our first break and be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, next week for our Christmas episode, we will be discussing Elf from 2003, directed by John Favreau, written by David Berenbaum, starring Will Ferrell, Zoe Deschanel, James Caan, Bob Newhart, and Ed Asner. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. You might even be able to find it in a local theater, as I at least know the Marcus and AMC theaters for the next, like, two weekends are showing a bunch of Christmas movies in theaters, at least near me. Yes, they're doing it in Wausau near me. Elf. White Christmas. Yes, and... um, I think It's a Wonderful Life might be on. And uh, your favorite. Oh, Love Actually. Love Actually. Let's go to best performance then. Dad, who did you have down? Stephen Lang. He's the one character that I actually thought had some depth and that uh, there was some actual acting going on. He was uh, somebody that you learned to loathe, and uh, his character developed into uh, into that that person that uh, you love to hate. Um, this is the only other thing. The only other thing I've ever seen Stephen Lang in was Gods and Generals and Gettysburg. But anyway, that's who I had for best performance. Honestly, I thought this was kind of an easy layup. To me, it's James Cameron, as far as concept creativity, basically creating an entire world from scratch. When we eventually get to Star Wars, I'll probably telegraph right away. The best performance of that one is George Lucas, because you have to create all of these different little details about a world building from scratch. It's not like it exists in a a regular Earth-bound world, although Earth does exist in this universe, but you have to create Pandora, you have to create an entire race, You have to create a language, all the visual effects that go into it. There's just so much that he did to produce this film, and it really is his more than any other movie, even going as far as like the Terminator universe, because that obeys a certain limit of rules within the current structure of Earth. This does not. And so by that extension, I just think there was a little bit more to do and build upon 
than he would for any of his other previous blockbusters that he had. And to be this commercially successful is really more than anything else a credit to him, given that most of the names at the time in the movie, with the exception maybe of Sigourney Weaver, although she was well past her prime acting era, is him. You came to see the movie because he was making it. And so for anybody else, I just can't think of a best performer. Well, I gave him my secondary performance. Just being the old curmudgeon that I am, I just couldn't give it to anybody who creates an environment where a movie is not based upon the quality of the acting or the story. And so that's why I went with secondary. That's a fair enough criticism. I just, all right. (laughs) I'm just being myself. That's true. And I wouldn't expect you to be anybody else because that would be weird. Yes. My best secondary performer... I actually had Zoe Saldana just because she had to be the most in character throughout the course of the movie. I thought as far as an acting performance, and I've seen her in many different films all the way from guess who the rom-com with Ashton Kutcher all the way to guardians of the galaxy. This is the one where she kind of loses herself the most in the role. And I don't even mean so much that she doesn't look like herself. And there are, Some elements of that, I think she looks less like herself than the Avatar people do. Obviously, with Jake looking a lot like Sam Worthington in the facial structure and how they rendered him. But just her mannerisms, the way she had to converse in the language more than anybody else. I just thought she had the most to do within the course of the film as far as major challenges comparative to anybody else. I guess good points. I I can see where we're coming from, at least, on it. And also, I found her to be the most believable, as far as just a character and my fondness for somebody that I cared about during the course of the film. I thought she was very convincing as being somebody who was native to this land, even though everything that she was doing was on some type of soundstage. Okay. Most charismatic? I had Sam Worthington. For being a relative unknown, I think you can at least somewhat connect with the character. I don't know how lasting that is, given that other than remembering Sam Worthington was in this film, I don't think anybody remembered the character's name. It's not like Luke Skywalker or anything, but you have to be able to connect with him in order for the story to work, because you have to pivot from being the explorer that is in his shoes. He is the for lack of a better term, avatar for the audience in this film. And then equally, you have to feel his turn to connecting with the Na'vi culture and understand his choice by the end of the film, not only to be one of them, but to transition to fully being one of them and leaving his human body behind. Okay. Mine was the CGI. Yeah, okay. I can buy that. Because, I mean, that's what this film was about. It was stunning. It was visually stunning. It was a kaleidoscope of color and imagery. At times, it almost was dizzying. I can't imagine, maybe it's just me, but seeing this in IMAX would have almost been overwhelming to me. I I I think it probably would have ended up with a headache just by the brightness and the the vast color. And I'm a big person for color and color contrast. I mean, my favorite artists usually are, are big on color and color contrast. 
but I don't know. So I went with the CGI for charismatic. Let's go to best scene then. I just kind of came up with the ones that I could really remember from a two and a half to three hour film. So I have the initial journey to Pandora, which is kind of the opening in his narration and getting all of the exposition out of the way. The second one I had down was the first day in the Avatar body, which, you know, it's him adjusting to it and then going into the woods and the rest of it. Followed shortly by Natiri saves Jake, which is self-explanatory. Although I would couple that with him meeting the tribe of the Navi and being, I guess, ingratiated into uh, their culture, at least initially. Then I have learning to fly, which was just kind of a, a good way of saying he adopts whatever flying creature that he gets, the kind of wrestling match that he has in order to have his ride all over Pandora. Then I have up in the mountains, which is the scenes where they go up into that offshoot avatar lab or whatever else to be away from the military the death of home tree which is explainable it's the big explosion scene where they take out the home base of the navi jake's redemption so him basically convincing the navi that he can help them and that he really wants to be on their side quaritch attacks which is kind of that final scene up in the mountains where we have that more or less final battle, and then the final fight between Jake and Quaritch. Anything I left out? No. I think that hits most of the major points with obviously some linkages in between, but nothing of significance or importance. As far as best scene, I had the death of the home tree. I just think it's one of the more pivotal scenes, and if you really enjoyed the movie, and to an extent, I actually enjoyed this rewatch, I don't think it's a movie I'm going to probably revisit much, if at all, but that scene has to work for you. And it kind of did for me. And it's somewhat emotionally ravaging at the same time. It's got to be the pivot point within the movie that you kind of can predict that ultimately the humans are going to act in their own interest to try and get the ore and go against Jake, and then he's going to try and fight back against them eventually. And for the amount of CGI and other things that had to be blended in, because I think it was one of the really first scenes where we get this blend of humanistic, realistic-looking machinery and actual humans blended at the same time with the computer-generated stuff of the Navi and their home base. And so I I thought from both a technical aspect as well as the emotional pivot of the film, I thought it was the best scene. Well, I had that scene, but that's my most indelible. Okay. My best scene is actually the last major combat. You know, that whole scene where they're fighting off and the Navi are rallying and fighting off the uh, sky people. I just thought that was well done. It was exciting. It was the one scene that I actually kind of got into where I thought, oh, this is kind of fun to watch and, uh, and and enjoyed it. So that's why I went with it as being the best scene because I thought it was the best paced and the most action filled of any of the scenes. Favorite scene? <laughs> I, I, I was really struggling with this and I'm going to I know you're going to roll your eyes about this, but I'm going to give this 
as uh, the reason is it's the opening scene, and it's predominantly because Joel David Moore was there not playing dodgeball. What? Yeah, because I couldn't pick a favorite scene. To me, there was nothing that was favorite about any of them. So I'm just going to pick that one. Like, oh, hey, there's Joel David Moore from Dodgeball, and he's doing something other than playing Dodgeball. Okay, great. Hey, it's Steve the Pirate. (laughs) (laughs) For me, I had down the learning to fly sequence. I actually really enjoyed watching him kind of struggle and kind of be in this wrestling match with this foreign creature eventually to try and link up and kind of in a mating ritual almost like choosing a horse, but it's like a flying pterodactyl type thing. So (laughs) I don't know. For me, that one appealed to me a lot. I think there were some individual action sequences in this that got me going as well, but that one really, I, I quite liked. As far as most indelible, you already mentioned yours. I have Jake versus Quaritch, the kind of final fight between the two, because that's really one of the few things that I remembered from the original film. I didn't remember that he had apparently like transferred his body into the Avatar at the end. I didn't really remember all the people that died, which is quite remarkable that in a major blockbuster, her father dies. The original guy she was pledged to dies. The Marine that they were enlisting to try and help them dies, or at least the helicopter pilot. Quaritch dies. Sigourney Weaver dies, although I guess she's supposed to be in the sequel somehow. So just about every major character that you've had any attachment to outside of Natiri, Norm, which is Joel David Moore, and Jake are all gone. Yes. So I thought that was interesting, but really the one thing that I remembered was Jake fighting Quaritch at the end of the movie, and Jake somehow wins out and survives, and they drive everybody off the planet. It's really how it ended, even though I only had a very faint memory of what actually took place. Again, I'd only seen this once, so. All right, that looks like another good spot to take our second break. We'll be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, you can still sign up for our newsletter at the new RonnieDuncanStudios.com. Find us on Instagram, Twitter, or TikTok at the handle at GMode Podcast, or find our new Facebook page under Greatest Movie of All Time Podcast. Do we have anyone to remember this week? Yes, we do. This uh, first one is uh, into the very recesses of my childhood. Um, Bob McGrath, who was uh, an American actor and singer was one of the original cast members of Sesame Street, dating back into, I believe, 1969, uh, when the show first started. I remember waking up with my sister watching this during the summers and come and play and seeing Bob McGrath at that time. So this is part of my childhood, but he was 90. He passed this week as well. He was also well-known as being a singer and an accomplished tenor and musician that performed in concert halls all over the world. I faintly remembered him from some things outside of Sesame Street. I at least have recognized his picture. I can't tell you from what, but I know that he's been in some things that I've seen, so not as much of a personal connection, but with somebody that's been on a long-running program that has to do with that level of nostalgia as childhood... I'm sure this is a personal loss for a lot of people of your generation. 
I think so, and I think it's even lost for your generation because Bob McGrath was in a lot of the videos you watched as a child, um, the Elmo videos, and I think he was in the musical Put Down Your Ducky. Okay, could be. Quentin Oliver Lee, 34, American Broadway actor, Phantom of the Opera, and Carolina or Change. He's really most recognized for playing the Phantom in the 2018 version of Phantom of the Opera on Broadway. Cliff Emich, 85, American actor. He was in Payday, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, and Mouse Hunt. He was also in several episodes of Little House on the Prairie, Happy Days, and many other major TV shows of the 70s and 80s. He was a longtime bit part character actor for a lot of different things, but he might be somebody that you'd recognize. I would encourage everyone to visit his linked obituary on our site. Yakira Chambers, 42, American television writer. She did uh, NCIS Hawaii. She was also an actress on John Henry and Insecure. She worked with several notable black female creators in both Issa Rae and Lena Waithe and was the current story editor for NCIS Hawaii before her premature passing. Al Strobel, 83 American actor. He was in Twin Peaks, Child of Darkness, Child of Light, and Megaville. I think his most famous role is being the one-armed character in Twin Peaks and the subsequent Twin Peaks movie that David Lynch produced and directed. And then finally, Kirstie Alley, 71 American actress, Cheers, Veronica's Closet, and the movie Look Who's Talking, as well as David's Mother. She was a two-time Emmy winner, once for Cheers in 1991, as well as for the miniseries David's Mother in 1994, She was the star of Veronica's Closet in the late 90s, and I guess she was a high-ranking member in the Church of Scientology. That's correct. And this, for me, is something because Cheers was one of my favorite shows when it was on. I, during the pandemic, rewatched the entire 11 years of episodes, and she added uh, something to the ensemble cast after Shelley Long's Uh, departure. And so we finally remember all these here for their contributions to the arts, TV, movie, the stage, music, or whatever, and everything in between with a moment of silence here in their honor. Thank you. Let's go to best lines. I'll start with Jake Sully. Everything is backwards now. Like out there is the true world and in here is the dream. Jake Sully, well, uh, I guess this is my last video log, because whatever happens tonight, either way, I'm, I'm not going to be coming back to this place. Well, I guess I better go. I don't want to be late for my own party. It's my birthday, after all. This is Jake Sully, signing off. Moat, it is hard to fill a cup that is already full. Jake, my cup is empty. Trust me, just ask Dr. Augustine. I'm no scientist. Then what are you? I was a Marine, a warrior of the uh, Jarhead clan. Jake Sully. She said all energy is only borrowed, and one day you have to give it back. Jake, this is how it's done. When people are sitting on shit that you want, you make them your enemy. Then you're justified in taking it. Colonel Quaritch, you are not in Kansas anymore. 
You are in Pandora, ladies and gentlemen. Respect that fact every second of every day. If there is a hell, you might want to go there for some R&R after a tour on Pandora. Out there beyond that fence, every living thing that crawls, flies, or squats in the mud wants to kill and eat your eyes for juju beans. We have an indigenous population of humanoids called the Navi. They're fond of arrows dipped in a neurotoxin that will stop your heart in one minute. And they have bones reinforced with naturally occurring carbon fiber. They're very hard to kill. As head of security, it is my job to keep you alive. I will not succeed. Not with all of you. If you wish to survive, you need to cultivate a strong mental aptitude. Jake, sometimes your whole life boils down to one insane move. Jake, all I ever wanted was a single thing worth fighting for. And the most true statement of the entire movie, Jake, there's no such thing as an ex-Marine. You may be out, but you will never lose the attitude. (laughs) Yeah, okay. Cheers. We know that firsthand. Yes, we do. Do you have any left? No. All right. Stanley Rubrick, then. Legacy is up first. Did you want to go first or second? Go ahead. Industry-wise, I'd be tempted to say this was a five just due to the amount of, I guess, box office receipts and the technology that was used. But really, the technology was made for a lot of 3D movies and look-in theaters. There are not a lot of 3D movies. IMAX has not become like all the rage. They're still kind of sparsely defining the United States, and they're not really global at this point. So what is the technology for? And if you're just going to tell me that motion capture and animation is a thing, we already went through the fact that that was already happening for a bunch of other different movies. Andy Serkis is the king of motion capture, starting with Gollum, but going to things like Caesar from the Planet of the Apes movies. It's not like that by itself is a defining technology that this movie invented. The visuals are great, but I just have a hard time going with a full five. So I'm going to go with a 4.5 on this one, and maybe that's even a little bit high from the industry, given how much people have kind of forgotten about this film. It's just hard to completely downplay a movie that is the highest grossing film of all time and a definable IP that's getting a sequel. As far as the audience, though, because this has been such a forgotten film, and even though it's been 13 years, the one thing anybody can remember about this movie is it was visually stunning, there were blue people, and it made a lot of money. That doesn't say much for the film. So I gave that a 2 for a 6.5 overall. Okay. Legacy. Okay, yeah, the industry has recognized it, but I don't think it's recognized it as being that influential. It just brought culmination of what was a bunch of loose concepts of how you could put together a CGI-type film together in one avenue. So I went with a three for legacy for the public. As I said earlier, I think people would just... There's as many people right now that are going to think avatars being on your phone... Versus Avatar, the Airbender series that's on Netflix as the movie. So I went with a 1.5. So obviously then the total is 4.5. Okay. So that's a 5.5 average between the two of us. Impact significance. 
Now, this is where I think this was bigger in the moment than it was in its full legacy, and maybe that will come back around as we get these sequels, if they're any good, and they get a lot of people's attention and dollars again. But the impact and significance at the time was pretty enormous, because everybody saw this movie. I didn't. I know, but you're always an exception to the rule. Regardless, I can't give it a full five for the industry, because... Even though it was the favorite for Best Picture, there were still some people that, at the time, said this was too much of a retreaded story, and were kind of pushing back on, is this really the movie that we want to win Best Picture? Yeah, it was the highest grossing movie, and we've done that before, but is it the best movie of this last year? I think that really kind of has defined the last maybe 13 years of the Oscars coverage is instead of going with the commercial blockbusters, because that's what everybody actually is into. They've gone for more of the indie film push. And we've gotten a lot of very small movies that have gotten best picture over the last 13 years as a result of it. So by that standpoint, I can only give it a 4.5 for the industry, but the audience is an absolute five. I mean, everybody saw this movie. It was a cultural touchstone for like a full year. And everybody talked about, oh, this was such a, an amazing thing to see in theaters. Was I that impressed? No, but I really only saw this for the first time on a very small, like, 32-inch TV that was only in 720p compared to seeing this in, like, a 3D <laughs> theater or IMAX. I, I love that comment. Only a 32-inch TV. My first television that I had, my first television that I had was 9 inches in black and white. Don't give me the, woe is me, I only had a 32-inch television to watch this. Well, I'm making a comparison point on what most people saw this versus what I saw it on. And I would think that if you give the option for most filmmakers, they'd want their movies to be seen on as big a screen as possible. Not a 32-inch 720p TV. Okay. Anyway, for me, obviously, I'll agree with you. The public is a five because it just it made such a shitload of money. Can you let me finish mine, by the way? Okay. So thus, it's a 9.5 overall total for me. I agree. Public is a five. The industry, I went with a four because it got nine nominations, but did it get one for acting? No. This was a contrived film. And I think to some extent, the Academy said, is this really what we want as far as representation for the future of film? That we could basically just sit in a room and contrive films by playing with a computer and we don't need actors and we really don't need anybody in the camera to do anything and the directing can be completely controlled. And I think that's ultimately what limited its impact even in the moment. I think there was a pushback for that very reason. So that's why I went with a four, because I have to give it a point down for that very reason. So I went with a nine. So that'll be a 9.25 average between the two of us. Novelty. The visual effects, cinematography, etc. are all novel for this film. I think that is the number one thing everybody that's from an industry or critical standpoint can agree on. But the story is always what people point to as a retread. So I'm of two minds in how I want to go about this. Because this was well ahead of anything else in tech, 
it gets a high score for novelty one way or the other for me, but was the tech so far advanced that it makes up for this played out storyline that everybody criticized at the time for basically just being Pocahontas or Dances with Wolves or The Last Samurai or basically any outsider turned savior movie that we have ever had. I can't make up my mind here, so I'm going to sit on the fence until I hear yours between a 9 and a 10. I went with an 8. Yes, I'll agree with your 9 or 10 from from a technological point of view. It would be, I guess, from a technology point of view, this would be a straight 10. But ultimately, isn't a movie the story itself? Movie makers, directors, actors are all about telling a story. When the story is so obvious that you can see parallels, I'm sitting here as I'm watching this without having known anything about, you know, what the ultimate outcome of the film was running through my head. Okay, this is like this movie. It's like this movie. It's like this movie. Boy, this is not really an original concept at all. I mean, it's just like a retread of several other films. And it's predominantly, this is a story about Native Americans in the United States. This is is a story that is very clear. If you're a historian, you understand that the reason why Custer was ultimately killed at Little Bighorn was because we gave the Native Americans in the United States the battle or the uh, Black Hills of South Dakota. Then we found out there was gold there. So we threw them off and they got upset and we ended up having this big fight between the U.S. cavalry and the Native Americans. It's the same thing. We have a group of indigenous people. They're on a territory. All of a sudden we find out there's a mineral we really want or need, and we try to push them off. So this is such a worn out story that has occurred in so many Westerns and then has been regurgitated so many different times in different ways, more modern. I had to give it huge marks down for lack of creativity. If you're going to go and spend this amount of time creating a new world and all this technology, why would you use a worn out script? So I gave it an eight. I think some people might argue with your premise of your argument that a story is what the movie is about. For me, I like plot, but there are a lot of people that would say character development, world building, those types of things could be what the movie's about. Could be a movie within a movie in the themes that it's trying to purvey or the stories that it's trying to ultimately tell within the story itself. And that it could be at times like an abstract art piece in that the execution is really what the thing is about as opposed to what it's representing. So I understand where you're going and I mostly would agree with that, but I do feel that I need to make the counterpoint to that point of view. So I'm going to go with a nine as far as my novelty score. So that'll be an 8.5 between the two. of Okay. So you didn't need any help with the math. I rarely do. I tend to be the better of the two of us at math. Uh, And for what I can't do, you know, there are these things on computers called um, calculators. Yes. Classicness. Strong female leads in Weaver and Saldana. Progressive appeals towards conservation over big business. But it's not timeless because it's been mostly forgotten despite being the biggest film ever. I can give it maybe a point up from where my neutral 
point of view is, but I can't give it up fully much more than that. And it is kind of a generic action war picture. So I went with an eight. Well, I'm actually going to exceed you because strong female leads telling a story that I think has relevance even today and how we've treated indigenous people, whether it be the uh, Native Americans in the United States, the Philippines people during the early 20th century, how the British dealt with people. I think that all comes into play here. There's a certain element of naturalism and of conservation and such. I, I went with a nine for that reason, because I think that there's more here positive as far as being relevant today from a storyline than not. Okay, but you're somehow giving it credit for being the blue people version of Gandhi? <laughs> like, just go watch Gandhi. But that's not what the classicness is. Classicness is a relevance for today. And I'm telling you that as we're rethinking our past over the last 100, 150 years, we are coming to terms with how we treated people who are not wasps. And I think to the extent that this film does that, add in the, the, the significant female characters and the fact that we're really dealing with another race, oh boy. you have to give it more classicness. So essentially, you uh, want us to teach critical Navi theory in schools. <laughs> As a school board president, no, no less. Uh, or no, I guess yeah. you're not president. I'm vice president this time around. School wrong. board member. I'm vice president. Whichever. Nobody, nobody in my district is going to be listening to this show anyway. Well, that's true. But the overall point being, when did you flip? Because you seem to start out at a 10 and either work your way backwards instead of your baseline five that you used to. So are you saying we have to like regrade a whole bunch of your stuff or that you have a new no. criteria that you're starting? No, with? I still started at five and I started going up. I started going up about the storyline, about how we about how we deal with indigenous people with the strong female leads, whether we're talking about race, which is positively discussing racial race and racial relation. And I had to go up. So it's at a nine. All right. So that's an 8.5 average between us, much like the last category. Rewatchability, 5.5 for me. I'm rather neutral on this movie. I thought it was somewhat enjoyable. And, you know, if it's on, sure. But I just don't know how many, like, cable channels is putting this movie on or anybody is saying, oh, let's fire up Avatar. Okay, fine, sure. Whatever. So for me, that's just slightly above my indifference at a five, thus 5.5. Well, I'm going to go with a two. And this is going to be a situation where I have a grandchild someday, if possible, or um, somebody who marries into the family and they want to watch this film. I'll sit and watch it with them to discuss it. But that's a, it's probably the last time I'm ever going to want to watch the film. For me, a two is I'm actively avoiding watching this movie. Yes, if the film is on, I'm not stopping. I mean, if I'm flipping through the channels, it's on, I'm going to go, uh, no way. But if somebody else wants to watch it, I will watch it again. 
Okay. So that's a 3.75 average between the two of us. We had an 86% for Google users and 82% for Rotten Tomato users for an 8.4 overall. So to repeat the categories, we had a 5.5 for Legacy. We had a 9.25 for Impact Significance. 8.5 for Novelty and Classicness. 3.75 for Rewatchability and an 8.4 audience score, giving us a final total of 43.9. And that would currently place it on the list between Top Gun and The Magnificent Seven. Okay. It has to go somewhere. Oh, I understand. Let's just say it's it's just outside the top 100. <laughs> I think we may need to revisit The Magnificent Seven at one point in time. Well, okay. I mean, you old Brenner. <laughs> you like bald men? Yes. Okay. Yul Brenner, Telly Savalas. Me? Eh, close. Anyway. Remaining questions for this movie. I have a feeling that most, if not all, of these questions will be answered by the subsequent sequels. So for us, in nine days, if we even bother to watch the sequel, which I may. No. Some of this may be answered and I can answer anything for you. Do you even have any remaining questions or are you just so disinterested in the movie that you didn't care? You were just glad the movie was done. I'll be honest. I had to break the film down into 30 minute increments because I just found it difficult to watch for more than 30 minutes at a time. So I just would lose interest. And I'm like, I watched it for the most part on my tablet because I was on the treadmill watching a half an hour at a time. And I'd go, what happened? So, okay. Anyway... So as the only leading man left from the Navi, does Jake become their new chief? Of course. I mean, just when the the scene where he comes back, how the other tribes or the surrounding tribes bowed to him when he came in, they obviously knew he was special. Well, I mean, he came flying in on that one large, like extra large creature that was red, which I don't know the name for. And that supposedly was the thing that would unite the tribes, but... Yes. Okay. Sure. I mean, it makes the most sense, but you're just kind of left open-ended from that? That's about the best I could answer, because I think he's. it's clear that he is going to be. The only other one I have is, where do you think Pandora is located? Since you can clearly see an image of Jupiter in the movie from the surface of the planet. <laughs> You think it's Jupiter? Who knows? I mean... You see the great red spot. Okay. I don't know. I mean, maybe. I don't know how we could have a moon that would have people and or an indigenous tribe that we would not know about in this time frame. I think there's like 23 moons of Jupiter, and I don't know how many of them have actually like had satellites explore them or take pictures of the surface of the planets. Or I guess the moons, excuse me. I don't know either. So I think it's entirely possible that there's something going on on, you know, one of the moons of Saturn or planet George. You know, it's, you could be, but as far as where Pandora takes place, I have to imagine it's pretty close to Jupiter. Yeah. Well, you never know what will happen when the Jupiterians invade. Well, we definitely know there won't be Jupiterians given that it's a gas planet and literally nothing 
can exist on the surface because there is no surface. Well, I just remember when you were a child how um, your uh, uncle Steve used to talk about the Jupitorians and and uh, he did. Yes, and you would get upset because there are no Jupitorians. Okay, sure. I don't remember that at all. But anyway, moving on. Final thoughts for the week. Um, we uh, or I happened to be at a uh, brewery tour, and the guy who was doing tour is doing his uh, degree in university on um, military history, and we started discussing All Quiet on the Western Front, the remake that was released and is now on Netflix. Uh, again, if I haven't already mentioned, I would suggest that people you have. watch it. it I, again, would I suggest people watch it. It's very good. I think it's clearly a at least contender for best cinematography and best foreign film. And I think it's well worth your time watching um, because I think it portrays war in a very clear and morally difficult situation that uh, people should understand better. I will be utterly shocked if it is even near the top 10 of potential nominees for cinematography. You just don't get that for foreign language films or I guess international films now. I think it very well and probably will be up for international film, but it's just not one of those that I've seen buzzing around the Cinematography Award, given that we have some other big hitter nominees potentially coming from that department this year, and most of those usually come from actual Best Picture nominees, which I don't think All Quiet will be one this year. As far as for me, I finally got to The Fablemans this last weekend, and I thought it was enjoyable. If you like the work of Steven Spielberg and know or have seen the majority of his movies throughout the course of his career, or at least some of the big ones, and you understand and appreciate some of the themes that he goes to, it's a very personal movie, even though the main character's name is Sammy Fableman. It's really representative of Steven Spielberg and should have probably just been told in the first person. I'm not really sure why they did this whole thinly veiled changing of names aspect given that the picture is dedicated to his parents and allegedly the top two build actors in the film are playing his parents but regardless i thought it was an enjoyable film and i know it's not gotten a lot of significant box office receipts to this point i think it is one of the clear front runners yet for best picture this year so I would encourage people to at least see it if they feel they could get something out of it. I'm not sure it's like a lot of other front-running Best Picture nominees to this point, but it is celebrating what you and I have said is possibly our greatest director of all time. That being said, I also finally got to see everything everywhere all at once, and I'll just give a hint that it very well could end up on my top end-of-the-year movies list that I'm going to reveal at the end of our final episode for the season coming up in a couple of weeks. I don't know if you want to join me on that, but I will be giving my either top five or top 10 movies of the year and my top five or top 10 TV shows of the year during that point. So I thought that movie was very well done. If you can follow some of the sci-fi comic book nature of the film, which I think is only just for kind of the world building aspects, it's a very personal film about family and about motherhood and 
kind of the relationships within a family as to your children. I think there's a lot that people could find themselves in this movie, or at least the relationship, if they've been a son or a daughter, or if they've been a father or a mother. I think there's things for everybody to find in this film, even though it's kind of a martial arts style, comic booky type film. I just think that there's a lot buried within this movie that is boiling under the surface and kind of hits you in all the right ways. So for everybody that went out and I think it was April or May and said this was a great movie, I'm sorry I missed it when it was in theaters, but this is an exceptional movie that will likely be nominated for Best Picture and I think could be the dark horse to actually win the award this year. Well, you know, having never been a son, um, having been hatched from an egg... You would be the exception to that rule, Yes, I'll, I'll look forward to seeing it myself. So that'll do it for us this week. Thank you for listening. Where are you headed, cowboy? Nowhere special? Nowhere special. I always wanted to go there. Next week, for our Christmas episode, we will be discussing Elf from 2003, directed by John Favreau, written by David Berenbaum, starring Will Ferrell, Zoe Deschanel, James Caan, Bob Newhart, and Ed Asner. You'll want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that more can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at thenewronniedunkinstudios.com or sign up for our newsletter. Find our new Facebook page under Greatest Movie of All Time Podcast or find us on Instagram, Twitter, or now TikTok at the handle at Podcast. Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM. <laughs>